You are listening to Sunday Gospel Reflections, a podcast made possible through the work of the Institute of Catholic Culture. I'm Father Hezekiah Carnazzo, founder and executive director of the Institute and your host for this program. In this podcast, we'll explore the historical and literary context, themes, and significance of the readings for the coming Sunday. This podcast was originally recorded as a video. For the full viewing experience, please visit us at instituteofcatholicculture.org. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Welcome back to all of our participants here for the 23rd Sunday in Ordinary Time. Annie Mitchell, welcome. Hey, Father. It's good to see you again. Good to see you, too. Very interesting Sunday we have because we are now standing at the gateway to what great feast? The exaltation of the Holy Cross, my favorite. Thus, the cross comes into view for the first time here in our study. It on the horizon. Boom. Yeah. So we're dealing with a couple of, of things, a convergence in, in a couple of things in, in the church's wisdom, having slowly and methodically worked through <laughs> two chapters in the last like three years of yeah. the gospel of Luke. <laughs> we are, we are, we now find ourselves in the gospel at just the moment in which yes, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, killing the prophets and so forth. The cross comes into view, right? Which we've been mm-hmm. talking about in the last couple of weeks. So Anyways, I just say that as a preparation to say that we're, we're kind of at this moment of like this turning point in our lectionary cycle. That turning point is reflected by way of preparation in the gospel that we encounter today and by extension in all of the texts that we, we encounter today. But let's take a look, Annie, give us our biblical text that we're going to be studying today. Yes, get out your notebooks and your Bibles. Here are the readings for the 23rd Sunday. Annie, do you actually have your Bible with you today or did you... I always have my Bible with me. It's that you keep wanting me to read straight from that Bible instead of from my lectionary book. Well, there is the, the, the lectionary book's not your Bible, but it, well, you know, yes, I know. But I have the Bible. I'm right here. I am ready for point, you. Actually, so it's like I have the RSV and the NAB here. So all right, let's get into it. Wisdom. <laughs> let's get into it. Yes, first reading is from the Book of Wisdom, Chapter Nine. Verses 13 through 18. Our responsorial psalm this weekend is from Psalm 90. The gospel, as Father said, we're still in what, like the same two chapters of Luke. Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 33. And our epistle, I believe this is the only time in the lectionary cycle that we hear from St. Paul's letter to Philemon. And because it's only one chapter, we're reading verses 9 and 10 and verses 12 through 17. Bingo. Well, you got that fancy lectionary book over there. I've got the old Xerox version. But nevertheless, we should be opening our Bibles to Wisdom chapter 9 so that we can see this text in context Mm -hmm. and go ahead. All right, so wisdom chapter nine. Wisdom chapter nine. We're starting with verse 13. Here we go. Who can know God's counsel or who can conceive what the Lord intends? For the deliberations of mortals are timid and unsure are our plans. For the corruptible body burdens the soul, 
and the earthen shelter weighs down the mind that has many concerns. And scarce do we guess the things on earth, and what is within our grasp we find with difficulty. But when things are in heaven, who can search them out? Or whoever knew your counsel except you had given wisdom and sent your Holy Spirit from on high. And thus were the paths of those on earth made straight. All right. So we read from the book of wisdom just a couple of weeks ago, Father, but mm-hmm. you know, there might be some people new to SGR um, mm-hmm. or who just need a refresher. Can you remind us what we need to know about the book of wisdom? And then also, in addition to that, what what's the context in this chapter that'll help us better understand what's being said here? Sure. So just um, we're going to go very quickly because I, I don't want to bore people that have been part of this study. And we've we've talked about the book of wisdom quite a few times. Just very quickly, of course, this we can turn to the very first page and to the, the title there, the wisdom of Solomon. Right. So this is traditionally associated with Solomon, the son of David, um, who we've talked about in his life and his struggles. Um, You can pick up some of those struggles if you want to. You've done this before with me, and I'll just give you the reference to First Kings chapter 10 chapter 10 and 11. You can read on your own. Anyways, Solomon is a conflicted figure. And we've always talked about this at the ICC that really, while Solomon inherits the throne of his father, and according to 2 Samuel chapter 7, that throne will remain forever. Solomon, in his sins, walks away from the Lord very much so, and ends up a conflicted figure. And by way of that becomes an example to all men who seek the Lord in our struggles with our own sins. And so the book of the wisdom of Solomon very much reflects Solomon's experience and his struggle uh, between the earthly man and the heavenly man, the one who looks at all of the riches of the world and says at the end of his days, what's it all worth Mm -hmm. if I don't have a relationship with the Lord? And here we find truly the wisdom of Solomon, the one who realizes where he's come from and what the purpose of his life is. And here in chapter nine, this is traditionally called, at least in my RSV, they've got a little subtitle, a prayer of Solomon or whatever. And it begins chapter nine, verse one. O God of my fathers and Lord of mercy, who has made all things by thy word and by thy wisdom has formed man to have dominion over the creatures thou hast made and rule the world in holiness and righteousness. Okay. And then it goes on to verse seven. You'll notice thou hast chosen me to be king of thy people and to judge and to be judge over thy sons and daughters. Thou hast given wisdom to build a temple in thy holy mountain, right? We know that Solomon built the temple of the Lord. And you can again, pick that, that story up in first Kings. I'm just going to flip over there. First Kings chapter nine and uh and and well so sorry chapter six and right in that area if you want to go read read about that but again i'd recommend you go back and read second samuel seven as a context to that okay so anyways verse 10 send her forth from the holy heavens and from the throne of thy glory, send her that she may be with me. Speaking of wisdom, right? Then the, the gift of, of God's all Holy Spirit. And so we pick up this text now in chapter 9, verse 13 to 18. This is Solomon's prayer. 
and as well as his reflection. As we read it out of context, it just sounds like a reflection, but ultimately this is his, his kind of groaning to the Lord and in a sense complaining. <laughs> yeah. He's yeah. like, you know, he sees the reality of where he stands. So here we are, chapter 9, verse 13. Who can know God's counsel? Well, who can know God's counsel? We're talking about Solomon the wise. And Solomon the wise still struggling with how he's going to come to know what the purpose of his life is and what the meaning of all of these riches he's been given. Who can know God's counsel or who can conceive what the Lord intends? And so this is this is Solomon's internal question. He's going to answer it at the end of our text, of course. Yeah. But in the midst of it, he says, this earthly existence, number one, is not what it's all about. It ultimately, in our current state, is a can be a detriment or a struggle to us in our relationship with the Lord. Yeah, I want to ask you about that. So if I'm understanding this passage correctly, it's basically saying our bodies weigh down our minds and keep us from understanding the counsel of God. Does that sound about? That's about right? it. Okay. So. Well. How do we fix let, that? <laughs> let me let me just put in a, a little caveat. Notice, and because he was a caveat. Yeah. He doesn't say the body burdens the soul. What does he say? He says the corruptible body Bingo. burdens the soul. That's right. So Solomon is dealing with the, the fact of our fallen human nature. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And at the end of this, he's going to bring us back because someone, so first of all, it sounds like he's in despair. And half the time Solomon is in despair. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But he ultimately doesn't despair because he knows the answer. And because he knows the answer, he's able to find his way out of his despair. This is certainly someone, someone would, would reference a text like this as proof of dualism, right? That Solomon somehow was a dualist. He, he rejected yeah, yeah. the good of the material world. In fact, the Jehovah's Witnesses make a big deal out of texts like this. And they say, see, our earthly bodies are nothing. And when we die, we cease to exist. They pull all sorts of stuff out of the writings of Solomon out of context because they don't realize that what's being revealed to us is the internal turmoil of a man. And because of that, that turmoil, he ends up being able to speak to us, men and women who will fall, find ourselves fallen. But he doesn't end there. And that's where the Jehovah's Witnesses and many do a disservice to his writings. And that is they don't read them in context. And the context for us here is Solomon opening himself up to the Lord and then saying, well, there is one answer to this, and it's given to us in the final verse of this text, or whoever knew your counsel, except you had given wisdom and set your Holy Spirit from on high. And thus, you see that? And that this in this way were the paths of those on earth made straight. See, so he's, he's not a dualist. Right. He's, he says, no, the paths of those on earth, the, thus the paths of those on earth are escaped. No, he's saying there's a path of holiness in this body. But that path is only by the gift of the Holy Spirit, by the gift of the wisdom of God. Obviously, there is no there is no sense of dualism in what what Solomon is writing. Okay, but let me share with you two quotations, one from St. Peter Chrysologus, because I always like to turn to the church fathers. You don't need to hear Father Hezekiah, even though I do talk too much. You need to hear the great saints. St. Peter Chrysologus says this, find out for yourselves what voluntary fasting can produce. 
A full belly spurs the heart of vice, oppressing the mind so that it cannot taste heavenly piety. The body, it says, which decays, weighs the soul and burdens the mind, which harbors many thoughts. There he's quoting wisdom, right? Mm -hmm. Thus also the Lord says, do not let your hearts be weighed down by carousing drunkenness. The stomach must therefore be kept empty with the temperance of fasting. The lighted soul can then turn upward, rising in virtues. See, and the virtues are in the body, right? Mm-hmm and freeing itself, winging toward the author of piety. And so here's where the fathers are going to take this text into wisdom. And they're going to say, yes, the corrupted body and the corrupted body, which is fed, that is in its corruptibility, um, uh, ultimately weighs down the soul. This is what St. Athanasius said in his work on the incarnation. It's what Socrates said in his analogy of the cave. It's mm-hmm. what Aristotle said. And that is that, that I mean, well, I'm going to go Christian, so I'm going to go St. Athanasius on you. And that is because of our sins, we end up like animals, right? Ant, like, a, like, a, like a cow, okay, grazing on the things of this earth and are not, unable to raise our eyes to the things of heaven. We are bowed down to the things of this earth and become concerned about this life and this life alone. And because of that, our mind is darkened. Our ability to know the truth is is weakened. Yeah, I'm going to give you mm-hmm. St. Augustine. He says, according to what is written, a corruptible body weighs down the soul and the tent of clay burdens the mind with many thoughts. We barely grasp earthly things and laboriously discover what is at hand. I, I've got a, a little insight from the catechism on the same point. Mm-hmm. Whether or not, then, the doctrines that a person studies are useful, it is necessary that he suffer. So it's not enough to come to know the Lord, St. Augustine mm. says. You must come to know the Lord, that is, study his revelation, yeah. but you must also join him in his way of the cross, right? Mm. He must suffer since a corruptible body weighs down the soul. For him too, this earth becomes, uh, gives birth to thorns, okay? Here's, I'm going to go to the catechism right now, and I am in the catechism, I'm in paragraph 37, with an extensive quote from Pius XII's encyclical, Humani Generis. This is Mm. what he says. Well, beginning with the Catechism, paragraph 37. In the historical condition in which he finds himself, I'm going to go back up one sentence into the previous paragraph, and that is, man has this capacity, that is, a capacity to come to know the Lord and, and have a communion with him, because he is created in the image of God. In the historical condition which he finds himself, that's fallen human nature. However, man experiences many difficulties in coming to know God by the light of reason alone. And then this quote from Pius XII, I do believe it's worth reading. Though human reason is, strictly speaking, truly capable by its own natural power in light of attaining to a true and certain knowledge of the one personal God, and then can just refer to St. Paul, Romans chapter 1 on that. God who watches over and controls the world by his providence and of the natural law written on our hearts by the creator, yet there are many obstacles which prevent reason from the effective and fruitful use of this inborn faculty. For the truths that concern the relations between God and man wholly transcend the visible order of things, and if they 
are translated into human action and influence it, they call for self-surrender and and abnegation. The human mind, in its turn, is hampered in the attaining of such truths, not only by the impact of the senses and imagination, but also by disordered appetites, which are the consequence of original sin. Okay. Mm -hmm. So it happens that men in such matters easily persuade themselves that what they would not like to be true is false, <laughs> or at least doubtful. Okay, I mean that's a God bless. Or at least doubtful. <laughs> I think um I think uh of our modern disaster regarding um the uh influence of the homosexual movement within the church and within society. And we begin to convince ourselves, well, I haven't convinced myself, thank God, but people begin to convince themselves that, yes, indeed, that this is true and good, and when it is not. Yeah. Why? Because we are fallen and our minds are darkened. And how do we free ourselves from this darkness? Not by escaping the body, but by bringing the body back into its proper relationship with the soul, the reordering of man. And how is man reordered? The church teaches, the fathers taught, and Jesus taught by fasting. Why fasting? Because fasting puts our lower passions and appetites in, in subjection to the dominion of the primacy of the intellect. Yeah. And we, we, we all, we always, we do this so oftentimes where our bodies are hungry and we constantly feed them in mean, this habit of letting our bodies make decisions. If you will, if we can talk about decision-making, we can't really, but you see, I say it driving us to do what we do without thought. Hmm. Yeah. And our, and so our intellect and our thoughts become turned and subject unfortunately, oftentimes to our appetites. Fasting reclaims the authority and primacy of the soul over the body. Okay. And thus the fathers of the church, St. Augustine, St. Peter Chrysologus and others, well, them on this particular passage say, speaking of Solomon say, if you don't want your corruptible body to burden your soul, then begin fasting. And, and through fasting, your soul will regain its proper place and then choose what is truly good and not passing away. As we read in the Psalms, right? Mm -hmm. It realizes that these earthly things are passing away and that the one true need is our communion with God. Yeah. Yeah. And so this is all placed now in the context of what we hear in the gospel, because now the cross is coming into view right? Mm -hmm. And Jesus is going to lay down the gauntlet as he's been doing in all of the parables and saying, the game's up, guys. The miracles are over. You saw them all and you're still walking away from me. And those that are still on the fence, you're going to have to choose now and there's no time left. Yeah. And so we're going to get to that in a minute, but, but, but nevertheless, I, this is, um, I hope a little bit helpful. And I'll just say in, in it just as we conclude this thing and the fathers are saying look at fasting is that we have lost in our catholic tradition today in in most places a sense of fasting and so i'll begin by saying because many people probably saying well father well yeah i know about fasting during lent but why are you talking about it right now i mean august september i mean fasting yeah what i fast now catholics traditionally fast on wednesdays and fridays so i'm gonna say that again Right to the microphone. Wednesdays and Fridays. <laughs>
Why Wednesdays and Fridays? The Didache, which we have a talk on at the Institute of Catholic Culture, the Didache, one of the earliest documents of the church, identifies that Christians, even in the first century, because the first century document, fasted on Wednesdays and Fridays. Why Wednesdays? Because Wednesday was the day traditionally associated with the, with the betrayal of Judas, that it was on Wednesday of Holy Week. Spy Wednesday, yes? Yeah. So we fast so that we are not associated with the one who didn't fast who ate and turned in the Lord, right? And then on Friday, because of the cross and the crucifixion. So I'm going to encourage you, begin there, number one. Number two, regarding feasting days, you know, feasting days are wonderful, but only if they're preceded by a fasting day or a fasting season. So as we approach the cross on September 14th, the day before, the day of, leading up to you actually going to Mass, ought to be a day of strict fasting. But the church doesn't say I have to. Well, yes, and the church doesn't say you have to go to heaven either. Yeah, <laughs> you can go to hell if you want, but if you want to go to heaven, if you want to, to, to as Saint Peter Chrysologus says, the stomach must therefore be kept empty with the temperance of fasting. The lightened soul can then tend upward, rising to virtues and freeing itself, winging toward the the author of piety. Okay, so there you have it from the Book of Wisdom, giving us a little bit of a of a beginning to our our liturgical, our, our spiritual focus for this Sunday. Yeah, well, another way to kind of think about fasting, you just brought up Peter Christologus enlightening the soul. There's also, you know, obviously an emptiness, if you will. As I was, I, I was looking at the Psalm as you were were talking about this, and it it talks about, you know. Fill us at daybreak with your kindness. So if you empty your stomach, you can be filled with the kindness of God. This is a great point, you know, Annie. I think we mentioned it a couple of weeks ago about being poor, about being in poverty. Mm-hmm. That one who is in poverty is one who is hungry. Yeah, so mm-hmm. we talk about the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor, right? Those are hungry. Um, and, uh, and, and actually, I, I skipped a, a little section here, St. Peter Chrysologus, because he's, he's re- referring to the story of the prodigal son, Mm -hmm. but it's applicable. So I'm going to go ahead and share it with you. He says this, how many of my father's servants have bread in abundance is the words, of course, of the prodigal son. Yeah. Well, I am, well, here I am dying of hunger. Hunger calls back those whom surfeit has scattered. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Hunger calls back those whom surfeit who've been filled up have scattered yeah. so you being filled up with the things that are actually scatters you yeah, yeah. that's what saint pericrisologus says oh. hunger made him recognize the father whom abundance had led to see only the parent and if involuntary hunger bore such fruit find out for yourselves what voluntary fasting can produce wow. yeah so i i really i i think one of the great spiritual uh, illnesses that we find in our church today is related to a lack of fasting. Mm-hmm. And not that I'm a great, uh, let me be very clear. I suffer from it myself. I'm not a great faster, but in so many places in the church today, fasting is kind of like why, you know, just shoved off as, as, as kind of like old, that's kind of old religion stuff. We don't do that anymore. The most important well, thing is hard. Yeah. yeah right. <laughs> And, we you don't know, do anything that's hard anymore. We right, have exactly. added pews, father. There you Come go. On. And we have pews. Well, we have pews. Pews aren't even hard. And if that wasn't bad enough, we have bad pews. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Annie, let's move on to this responsible psalm. 
Yes. Well, that's what uh, that's what I was just quoting. Fill us at daybreak with your kindness that we may shout for joy and gladness all our days. And may the gracious care of the Lord, our God, be ours. Prosper the work of our hands for us. Prosper the work of our hands. Annie, I'm going to just put a big old time out right there because you went to the last verse. But look at all yeah. the other verses that are before that, because they're, they're, they tie us right back to, to, to what we're talking about, about being hungry yeah. before we can be filled with the Lord. Mm. So you're, that, that last paragraph talks about being filled with the Lord. But notice the, the earlier text, right? This is from Psalm 90. You turn man back to dust, saying, return, O child of men. For a thousand years in your sight, as are as of yesterday, now that it is past, or as a, a wash of the night. So this is again, again Solomon, you know, or David, saying, mm-hmm. you know, what is this life all that? You make an end of them in their sleep, and the next morning they are like the changing grass, which at dawn springs up anew, uh, but but by evening wills and fades. Teach us to number our days aright. As that's a that's a beautiful way of saying give us wisdom right show us where we've come from and what the purpose of our life is then we'll understand the days of this life that we've been given in their proper context that we may gain wisdom of heart there it is return O lord how long have pity on your servants and then fill then, then this what you read fill us at daybreak with your kindness that we may shout with joy and gladness all our days notice how the difference is our days are like grass that withers up but if those days are filled with the Lord rather than filled with the things of this world, then, then we're, our days are filled with gladness. Mm. And may the gracious care of the Lord, our, uh, our God, be ours. Prosper the work of our hands. So now there's suddenly a different type of work going on. You know, what a difference there is between those that place the Lord first in their lives and those that place the things of this world. And fasting has everything to do with that. Placing the pr- a proper priority back in our lives, our relationship with God first, and then everything in relationship to that, which is which is ultimately what the gospel is all about. Yeah, I was going to say, Jesus telling us to fast from more than just food in, yeah. uh, in today's yes, gospel. Is. Get ready for this one. Go Get ahead. Get ready for this Luke, one, folks. Luke chapter 14. And we are starting in verse 25. You ready, Father? Well, I'm turning there. Luke chapter 14, Mm -hmm. verse 25. 25. I got it. Okay, go ahead. All right. Great crowds were traveling with Jesus, and he turned and addressed them. If anyone comes to me without hating his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Which of you, wishing to construct a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if there is enough for its completion? Otherwise, after laying the foundation and finding himself unable to finish the work, the onlookers should laugh at him and say, this one began to build but did not have the resources to finish. Or what king marching into battle would not first sit down and decide whether with 10,000 troops he can successfully oppose another king advancing upon him with 20,000 troops? But if not, while he is still far away, he will send a delegation to ask for peace terms. In the same way, any, uh, any one of you who does not renounce all his possessions cannot be my disciple. Hmm. Okay. Well, well, 
I mean, we've been saying this for a number of weeks now. We know that Jesus is on his final journey to Jerusalem. As you were saying, the cross comes in view. I mean, quite literally, Jesus references the cross here in in this passage. Um, But that said, um, what is kind of the immediate context here? What's been going on that led up to this point? Well, Jesus was, uh, okay, first of all, geographic context is not clear, okay? He's somewhere in the region of Galilee, probably still in Capernaum or the surrounding areas. He may be making his way at this point down, you know, going, heading south through the Judean desert, possibly on the eastern side of the Jordan River, having escaped as quickly as he could from Herod's grasp. So we'll go back again to that passage we took to, talked about last week. I want to add one comment to what I said last week, which I think is important. And coming back here to chapter 13, verse 31, at that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform curses today and tomorrow. Cures today and tomorrow. Not curses. <laughs> what did I say? Curses. You said curses. I perform curses. <laughs> <laughs> there you have it. Uh, perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, killing the prophets and stoning those who are sent to you. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wing, and you would not. Behold, your house is forsaken. Okay? Mm -hmm. So these are strong words from the Lord and places us kind of in this moment in which Jesus is now going to go head to Jerusalem. But we've been saying that a lot. He's going to now head to Jerusalem. Well, he came down from Mount Tabor, finds his way back to the Sea of Galilee area, and he has these Pharisees come up with it. I made the point last week that these guys are not like taking care of Jesus, right? And this was the one thing I wanted to just add. And then is they tell him, get out of here. Mm-hmm. But by saying get out of here, they know that that means to go to Jerusalem. Where they know that there are men waiting to, 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 to arrest him. So, and I'm not making too much out of this, by the way, in, in, if you just turn hold your, your Bible there and turn to the gospel of Mark chapter three, which is early on Mark chapter three, verse six, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians and well, who are the Herodians while well, they're Herod's court. Yeah against him how they might destroy him this is and this is many moons before maybe yeah. two years prior to what we now get in luke chapter 14 wow. so these the pharisees are not their hands aren't cleaning the whole business so when they say get out of here jesus then responds to them and and prophesies plays in front of them the prophecy um which they already kind of know and are part of and he says in front of them what they're doing is they're, they're heading him into the trap if you will while, mm-hmm. while playing his buddy they're pushing him toward the trap but he knows the trap he knows the game he knows what's going on and he says to him i'm not leaving here until i'm done and when i'm done then i'll leave here and then we have these parables then continue in the gospel of luke parables which which are kind of 
give us Jesus's inside conversation as he's heading to Jerusalem, surrounded by a bunch of people that hate him. And he gives parables which are not understandable to those who are against him. And yet he gives the key to those parables to those who are on the inside, right? Mm-hmm. His, his, his closest uh, apostles who come to him and say, what did you mean? How do I understand this? Whereas those who are on the outside that are traveling with him. They're associated with him. They like being near the rock star, but they're, they're not coming to faith in him, right? And so here we are in the gospel of Luke chapter 14, and we skip a passage from last week, yeah. right? We skipped yeah. verses 15 through 24. Am I right, Annie? Yep, you are. Right. So last week, so we didn't get this. And that is the conclusion of his dinner. Yeah, his dinner speech. The dinner party. (laughs) Jesus finds himself in which he says, well, you invite basically what he says to the Pharisees. Well, you invited the bridegroom to the marriage, to the banquet. And let's tell, let's tell the truth about it. I've been with you for three years, dining with you and you reject me. So therefore here's what I'm going to do. Now, Jesus is sitting at the table with these guys. You got to imagine what this is like. It's like going to your friend's house and uh, he serves you filet mignon or not your friend's house, somebody's house. Or your, he serves you filet mignon and you like take the filet mignon and you spit on it. Yeah. Right. And so he says, he says, I know you guys are corrupt and, and here's what I'm going to do. You're all sitting around the table at the banquet of the, of it's the marriage banquet. I mean, for God's sake, Jesus is there. The marriage feast is set in front of these people and yet they've rejected him and they continue to reject him. And so what does he say? I reject you Hmm. and I'm going to replace you with a bunch of people that you hate, which is what we get in verses 15 through, through uh, 24. When one of those who sat at table with him heard this, he said to him, blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Well, guess what? That's what this guy is doing. He's sitting with the kingdom of God, the king of the kingdom. But he said to him, let me explain to you, son, what's going on. Okay. A man once gave a banquet, invited many. And who is this person who made the banquet? It is God himself, our heavenly father. And he sent uh, the time the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come for all is now ready. Pharisees, you've been invited. Jews, I've been with you for three years. But they all alike began to make excuses of why they could not actually become followers of Christ. Yeah. And so we skip to verse 24. For I tell you, none of those men sitting at that table with Jesus who were invited shall taste of my banquet. And they certainly could understand what was going on for they were sitting at a banquet with the one who claimed to be the Messiah, the King. Wow. Yeah? yeah. Now a great multitude, verse 25, picks up, picks up our story. A great multitude accompanied him. There's your context, Danny. Yeah. Okay. So we mentioned that he actually, you know, talks about the cross here. And I was thinking about this father. I mean, okay. So 2000 years past the resurrection, we hear this idea of picking up your cross and following him. Um, it, I right. mean, it almost sounds kind of trite, right. Yeah. For, for us who have the benefit of, of hindsight, if you will, um, this 
this would have been pretty shocking to those who were like listening in real time, would it not? Yeah, I was thinking about that as I was reading this text. I was thinking, what would they have thought, you know? And I, yeah. and I at first I said to myself, I don't know. Yeah. Like, is this even, I don't know. Okay. However, mm-hmm. there is another, there's another passage that I think can help us understand what they were thinking. Okay. Oh, okay. But I do want to, by the way, I want to talk about the parents a little bit before we're done here about sure. hating your parents. Cause that's, yeah, a pretty, yeah. I mean, is Jesus breaking the commandment? Right. Honor your father and your mother. Here mm-hmm. he says, hate them. So we have to deal with that. However, let's go ahead and talk about what you're asking first. And, and, and so by way of con or by way of helping us understand what's in the, in the mind of the apostles, I'm going to turn you back to the gospel of John chapter 11, because in the gospel of John chapter 11, there's a very interesting conversation that happens. This is of course, the story of the raising of Lazarus. Okay. Mm-hmm. And when does when does this take place well it takes place in the same time period as we're looking at the gospel of luke maybe the gospel looks a little bit earlier right the, those parables that are being given it's mm-hmm. possible that jesus is giving those parables a little earlier up towards galilee but certainly on his way to jerusalem here he's made his way through the jordan valley he's going to make his way now up to to bethany for the raising of lazarus so he's possibly it's a little bit further along, but I think it gives us a little insight into what's going on in the head of the apostles while Jesus is talking in these parables. And now the cross comes into view. So if we look at the race of Lazarus, I'm in verse 14. Then Jesus told them plainly, this is chapter of John eleven fourteen. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Thomas called the twin. Now stop for a second. Let us go to him, which means let us leave the outskirts of the district of Judea Mm. and let's head to the belly of the beast because Bethany is on the, on the edge of Jerusalem. Yeah. Okay. Thomas called the twin said to the fellow disciples, let us go also, let us also go that we may die with him. So I would just put that in the thing and say, you know, my first reaction was, yeah, what would these guys have been thinking like the cross? Are you serious, Jesus? But a certain point in this passage of Luke and well, it's at this point, there certainly begins to be a turning point in the way Jesus is talking and the way his closest friends understand what he's saying. Hmm. There's a certain point when they start to realize that it's going to get bad and it's going to get really bad. And Jesus starts to hold up the cross for them and say, it's going to get this bad. And that's what he does in this passage. And, and I just, like I said in the last few weeks, well, maybe the last couple of months, is that there's a dividing line. It's very clear in the gospel of John, this happens, not so clear in the gospel of Luke, but it's still happening. And that is there are layers to those who are following Jesus. There are his disciples who themselves are divided, right? Mm-hmm. You've got Judas mixed in there. You got James and John vying for who's going to be the greatest, right? So there's still a struggling. There's an internal struggle right around him. And then there are those, you know, maybe the 70, I might say, or the hundred or whatever it is, who are really paying attention to Jesus. And yet they're, they're on the fence because there's the next group over. And this next group are all of their brothers and sisters and cousins and fathers and mothers. And they're all mixed up one group to the next. 
And some people are drawing closer and others. Don't we find this in our own families? Oh, yeah. You know, Annie, you're you're a crazed, uh, you know, hyper conservative Catholic radical. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm sure you have in your own family, brothers and sisters, or some of our family's mothers or fathers or cousins or aunts and uncles who look at you, Annie, sweet Annie Mitchell and say, I think she's a lunatic. She's a lunatic. And, um, and she hates women because she's pro-life mm -hmm. and all of those things. And she's gone off the deep end with the whole Jesus thing. That is exactly what is going on in the gospel. And that's exactly what Jesus is going, go, going after, which is why we have to say something about this hating father and mother thing. Yeah. Right? Can we well, say something I mean, about that? I was going to, yeah, I wanted to ask because <laughs> I mean, it's like, okay, we have to hate father and mother, our wife, our children, our brothers and sisters. We have to hate our own life. Um, we, what we have to carry our cross. We have to renounce all our possessions. I mean, does Jesus want any followers to be with him right. anymore? Really, I mean, this is like, the language who's going to stay with this? In the gospel, the language is very radical, okay? It's yeah. a little bit It's a little bit more explained in the gospel of Matthew. So I'm going to turn to you to oh, the gospel okay. of Matthew chapter 10 to this same, basically the same passage. And it's, it'll sound to you very much like the gospel Luke of what we've been reading these last few chapters. Okay. Mm -hmm. Chapter Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Remember we talked about this a few weeks ago, Annie, and I had yeah. a quotation from St. John Chrysostom that said, what kind of peace does Christ bring? Well, the kind of peace he brings is when he cuts out the cancer, yeah. right? And so he brings, he does bring peace, but it's authentic peace. It's not as the world knows peace. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So do not think that I've come to bring peace on earth, but I have come not to bring peace, but the sword for I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's foes will be those of his own household. Now here's the key. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. So you see how Matthew Matthew gives us a couple of words of Jesus that are critically important. And that is that there, that authentic love must be love in the Lord. There is no love apart from Christ because he is love, right? God is love, John tells us. So those who would say, well, I love you. But, you know, your radical Christian thing doesn't work for me. That's not love. That's peace as the world knows it. That's calmness. That's bringing a, a, a truce. That's nice between, feelings. Yeah. That's nice feelings. And nice feelings don't save anybody. The only way one can love a father or mother, truly love them, is not as father or mother. That's not enough. That's where we're uh, uh, earlier from St. Peter Chrysologus, right? He says, hunger made him recognize the father, speaking of the prodigal son, whom abundance had led to see only as the parent. Mm. And I think this is the key to what Jesus is talking about. It's not enough to honor your father or your mother as your father and mother. What, what is there salvific about that? However. The next step, the next step that Jesus is inviting us into is a relationship. Yeah. 
And that relationship can only be established. See, if we're going to go beyond lip service to a real relationship, it can only be in the one relationship that does exist. And it's a relationship of the Holy Trinity. That's a relationship of love. One can only love his father or mother if he loves the image and likeness of God that is within them. If he loves them as Christ, not simply as a father or a mother, a parent, one who generated the person. No. Yeah. And unless that relationship is established, then nothing will happen. So here are the guys standing on the, on the, on the, on the fence, right? Around Jesus and their father and their mother is over further away. They have to choose. Are they going to associate or continue that communion with father or mother because it's father or mother? Or are they going to have their communion with Christ and invite their father and mother to join them in that communion? Not necessarily as father and mother, but as, 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 as equals in the Lord, as members of the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then they can truly love as God loves. Yeah. So yeah. this is not a way of explaining away the radicalness of Luke. I kind of rather like the radicalness of the way Luke describes this. And he places up then the cross. Yeah. For one who would seek his life will lose it. But he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Why? Because it is God from all eternity who has who is, has given his life. Yeah. Who has lost his life, if you will, the father pouring out the his life into the son in the Holy Spirit. And the son incarnate goes to the cross to reveal this great mystery that is true from all eternity in whose image and likeness we have been made. Hmm. That was beautifully put. Um, okay. I want to talk about the second reading a little bit here. Sure. So the well, reading is Annie, from- hmm? We skipped this whole thing about building the house. Oh, do you want to talk about that? Okay. It's parable. Yeah. We get the parable. Because the second half of this whole thing says, we could just use the first one. Which, which of you wishing to construct a tower does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if there's enough to, for its completion? <laughs> Guys, we're going to Jerusalem. Have you packed your bags? Yeah. Because three years in Galilee is all over with. The honeymoon's done. We're not going to be walking on water anymore. We're going to Jerusalem to the cross. Have you calculated cost? Yeah. Have you calculated what's going to cost you? It's going to cost you your father. It's going to cost you your brother. It's going to cost you everything that you held as dear. And the only thing that you can hold as dear now is the cross. And only through that are you going to discover real life. I'm going to share with you two quotations, one from St. Gregory of Nyssa, the other from St. Basil of the Great. I'm reading them in their entirety because they're worth it. And then we can turn to your episode. Great. St. Gregory of Nyssa says this. The gospel says that a person who begins to build a tower but stops with the foundations and never completes it is ridiculous. What do we learn from this parable? We learn that we should work to bring every aspiration to a conclusion, completing the work of God by an elaborate building up of his commandments. One stone does not make a complete tower, nor does one commandment bring the perfection of the soul to its desired measure. It is necessary to both erect the foundation and, as the apostles say, to lay upon it a foundation of gold and precious stones. That is what the products of the commandments are called by the prophets when he says, I have loved your commandment more than gold and much precious stones. St. Basil the Great says something similar. 
Whoever would truly be a follower of God must break the bonds of attachment to this life. This is done through complete separation from and forgetfulness of old habits. It is impossible for us to achieve our goal of pleasing God unless we have snatched, we snatch ourselves away from fleshly ties and worldly societies. We are then transported to another world in, a, in our manner of living. The apostle said, but our, our citizenship is in heaven. The Lord specifically said, likewise, every one of you that does not renounce all that he possesses cannot be my disciple. My brothers and sisters, I, I think those two insights from St. Gregory of Nyssa, St. Basil are very important for us who have, in a sense, laid a foundation or somebody has laid a foundation in our lives. Because how many of us, myself included, went through a conversion or went through a point in your life where you came to the realization that you needed a relationship with the Lord, came to that point in which you experienced spiritual growth, but then allowed that spiritual growth to kind of ossify, you know, to become like bone. And, 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 and yeah, we kind of maintain on that myself included, but we must continue to build. And this is what the Institute of Catholic culture is all about, by the way, I'm going to give a shameless plug because we have to be constantly striving to build, striving to, to grow in the Lord as St. Gregory of Nyssa says, to build, to lay upon it a foundation gold and of gold and precious stones, is quoting the apostle. So um, I just encourage you that regarding this fasting business, regarding the cross that is before us, our life of faith is a life of a journey of constant struggle, of constant desire to come to the Lord, of constant renewal. Never let that foundation become, uh, become like dead stone. It has to become living stone. Yeah, and then to build upon it, uh, it throughout our life, through our our study and so forth. I was a beautiful line in um yeah in the gospel. This one began to build, but it did not have the resources to finish. Mm. You gotta yeah. have the resources to finish, and those re- resources are the study of the things of the Lord, His revelation, and then having come to know the Lord, we open our heart to the resources, right? We need to respond to the invitation card and the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within us. Just encourage you never to become despondent, never become discouraged, never to allow what foundation was there to become old, but constantly tilling and keeping in our lives and growing in the Lord. We have built in with one another into not a house which is forsaken, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, a house which is literally was empty, right? The glory cloud was gone. The, the Ark of the Covenant was gone after the Babylonian exile. The temple that Jer- Jesus encountered was empty, a house forsaken. The Lord had not returned there. And let us not have a forsaken house, but one which has the Lord dwelling in our midst as the center of our life. It's a, actually a really nice segue to what I wanted to get to with the with the second reading here, because... I mean, if you don't know what this letter concerns, it doesn't really make any sense. Well, maybe it makes a little bit of sense, but not a whole lot in the context of the readings that we're getting this weekend. Yep. Because this is, I mean, this is about renouncing a possession, is it not? This letter to Philemon. Sure. Absolutely. You wanna, let's go ahead and read it. Okay. Let's do it. This is Philemon. Where's Philemon in the Bible, Father? Uh, it's, I think that's back there by Genesis or, um, Oh, is it? Oh, okay. You know, what's helpful to remember a lot of time, not, this isn't completely true, but for the most part, it's true. And that is just like the prophets in the old Testament go from longest to shortest. Mm -hmm. So the letters of St. Paul go from longest to shortest. So here we find 
in well you have the epistle to the hebrews stuck on on the end there because many don't believe that it was saint paul writing i think it was but nevertheless you have philemon over here in a very short letter so go ahead okay i'm sorry so, well you asked me where it is well it's right before hebrews find right hebrews, hebrews which is much easier to find and you go backwards yeah it's right after titus between titus and hebrews okay so we're reading verses 9 and 10 and then skipping to verse 12 through 17. Okay. I, Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner for Christ Jesus, urge you on behalf of my child Onesimus, whose father I have become in my imprisonment. I am sending him, that is, my own heart, back to you. I should have liked to retain him for myself so that he might serve me on your behalf in my imprisonment for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that the good you do might not be forced, but voluntary. Perhaps this is why he was away from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a brother. Beloved, especially to me, but even more so to you, as a man and in the Lord. So if you regard me as a partner, welcome him as you would me. All right. What's that all about father? Well, first of all, we can go back to, 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 uh, to uh, verse one, Paul, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother. So it appears that Paul and Timothy are both have been arrested. They're in prison with this guy Onesimus, who was apparently a slave in this community. And what I, I just think is very, very beautiful, because we, it, of course, we want to read this in context liturgically in the context of the gospel, right? And why the mm -hmm. church is placing this here in front of us. And, and here they talks about two forms of slavery, or well, one form of earthly slavery. And then, oh, well, I say this, earthly slavery of Onesimus, who was held ca in captivity by these people. And notice what he says. It, well, I think actually the, our, our passage skips this, verse 11. This, there's a little parenthesis there. Formerly, he was useless to you. I love that. In, in, yeah. in, because why? Well, they found, they thought he was useful in earthly matters, right? For earthly gain. But he says, no, actually, when you treated him as a slave for earthly gain, as you treated him as a, in seeing in him your parent, right? You said back to father and mother as yeah. the generator, if you will, instead of one in the image and likeness of God. When you treated him that way, he was useless to you. He didn't actually accomplish for you what he could have accomplished. And now St. Paul finds himself in physical slavery but sends to him the slave, but now freed to be actually useful, right? If they love him. And I, it's just, there's a beautiful contrast between Paul in prison and in slavery, if you will, to Onesimus and St. Paul in earthly bondage sends the freedom, if you will, to the people because he's willingly accepted his cross and having willingly accepted his cross, he can now do for the community what he could not otherwise do. Yeah. So St. Paul, you can say is been crucified for Christ. He's in prison physically. And now he gives spiritual life from the cross 
Yeah. And so you have these beautiful words, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a brother. Hmm. Beloved, especially to me, but even more so to you as a man in the Lord. So if you regard me as a partner, welcome him as you would me in this beautiful unity of Paul and Onesimus and the community now restored in their relationship of love because of the cross, because of the imprisonment, because of the struggle, because of the challenge, because of the difficulty between father and mother. Yeah, we discover what is truly most important in our lives. That's why fasting, going back to the beginning, is so critically important. It's our prison. It's our willingness to enter into a slavery, not to men, but to the Lord himself. Yeah, and it's only there in accepting our cross that we begin to find the true life which God has given us, that we might die to ourselves, that we might live for him. My brothers and sisters, and God bless you as we prepare for this beautiful feast of the Holy Cross that is before us. I encourage you to keep the fast in the day leading up to, or if you're going to be going to Mass in the evening, keep that day before you receive communion uh, as a day of strict fast so that you're prepared to come before the cross and embrace the cross, then it might give a newness of life to your life. To Christ our God be glory, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Thank you for joining us for the Institute of Catholic Culture's Sunday Gospel Reflections podcast. The Institute of Catholic Culture is an adult catechetical organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. I invite you to explore all we have to offer, including over 900 hours of on-demand catechetical opportunities, and sign up for our upcoming events by visiting instituteofcatholicculture.org.